0: Hi, this is Bradley Tusk, and we're back with the third installment of our year-end series. We've already talked about fintech and digital health, and today we're going to talk about media. My guest is Stephanie Mehta, the editor-in-chief of Fast Company. And Stephanie, in a manner of speaking, is kind of my boss because I write a monthly column for Fast Company, but that's not why we're having her on today. We're having her on because in an industry overwhelmed by blustery visions and overhyped shifts in business models, Stephanie keeps her eye on the ball. She makes smart moves that keep Fast Company relevant and viable, and I want to talk to her about why that is. She's focused on providing clear-eyed, timely coverage of the tech industry, content first, because she believes that's the best way to grow and maintain your audience. But she also sees the big picture. And during COVID, when she had to make their innovation festival remote rather than person, the number of participants actually increased from 2,000 to 30,000, a 15X increase. Um, And so I think seeing how the world of media has changed uh, over COVID, how Stephanie has seen it both uh, evolve and devolve, um, to me, makes her the perfect person to talk to you about uh, the changes in media, where this industry is going, uh, and how what we should understand about it. So, Stephanie, here we are. All right. Welcome back to Firewall. Uh, as usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is a guest who uh, I've known for a while now, uh, have worked with for a while, and really enjoyed it. So excited to have her uh, here on the podcast. Stephanie Meta. Stephanie, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Bradley. Excited to be here.
0: So you're currently you know, editor-in-chief of Fast Company, and you're, you're the boss there. But just walk us through quickly, because since we're going to be talking about how media has changed over COVID and then where it's going, you're about as credible as anyone I can imagine. Give us like the the one minute on your career.
1: Um, yeah. So I, I got my start in newspapers, um, did a stint at a local newspaper before spending uh, six years at the Wall Street Journal in the um, mid to late 90s. And then, you know, kind of wanted to make the move over to magazines and the dream job for me was moving over to Fortune, which at the time was, you know, this was the year 2000, publishing these 600 page issues, um, putting, you know, giving Vogue a run for its money in terms of being fat with advertising. So I made the move over to Fortune and it was a great move for me. I really learned how to be a feature writer and a magazine editor there and spent 14 years at Fortune before deciding that I wanted to kind of take a bit of a sabbatical. The media industry was going through, um, when is the media industry not going through a rocky time, but it felt like a particularly rocky time. So I took a little bit of a beat and then got recruited to uh, work over at Bloomberg Media, was there for two years, spent two years at Vanity Fair as um, one of Graydon Carter's deputy editors and, and then, then The
0: Hive started under you,
1: right? Uh, well, uh, John Kelly started The Hive. Um, I showed up in, shortly thereafter and, and worked with, with John and his team on a new establishment list and a couple of other projects. And then um, the opening at um, Fast Company came in um, 2018. And you know at that point, I had been deputy um, editors at, at a number of publications and kind of Wanted the chance to be editor in chief somewhere before before my time <laughs> ran out. So yeah, that's, well, you, that's what you, I've been doing. You,
0: you did it at a great publication. I guess I should also disclose that I make column unpaid columns for fast company. So Stephanie, in some ways, is my boss. But um, but
1: uh, so benevolent dictator.
0: Benevolent, yeah. That's that. I think that's probably a fair way to describe it. Actually. Um, okay. So you, you're at fast company for for you know less than two years. And then all of a sudden, this mega global pandemic hits. What was your reaction initially, not on the, hey, I hope my kids and I are going to be safe, but like, how am I going to run a global magazine and website um, in this new environment? So, What was your initial reaction?
1: Yeah, you know, surprisingly, my initial reaction after is my staff going to be okay? Um, and making sure that everybody was safe and, and cared for and, and was able to you know, sort of deal with their own personal issues was um, I actually kind of looked at it as an opportunity. Um, you know, Fast Company's newsroom before the pandemic was already about 20 to 25% virtual. We had a lot of people working remotely and because we're a small shop, you know, we don't have bureaus in all these cities around the country, people generally work from home. So on the digital side, we had a pretty good sense of how to do it. People periodically would work from home on a given morning. Um, there's a fair amount of time shifting of the job. People would log on for a couple of hours in the morning and then commute in and then you know go back to to, to their desks. So I was pretty excited because I, I felt like on the digital side, we, we really wouldn't miss a beat. And, you know, it's the story of a generation. It's the story of a lifetime. Even though we're not a health and general interest publication, it was the greatest business story that I'll probably ever get to tell. And, you know, I lived through two major financial crises as a business journalist. So for me, it was exciting because it was a chance to put into context information. And it was exciting because um, after four years of people well, two years of people not really trusting the media, suddenly, you know, people really were turning to uh, verified news sources for information. On the magazine side, it, I, I won't uh, lie, it's, it was a little trickier because sure. we're so used to, um, even in this day and age, printing out layouts and looking at how the photography and the words and the captions and the headlines all work together on the page. And so for the creative team, it was definitely a challenge. You know, in some cases, it was just getting the software on their home computers that they needed to put out the magazine, because a lot of this... um, production and, um, design software, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's heavy duty stuff. So we had to figure that all out.
0: What about like where you print the magazine, where they was, were they open?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, our, our print production company, you know, managed to, to stay open and, and put out magazines in 2022. Because uh, partly because of the financial environment, we did drop an issue. Um, we normally produce six issues a year. We, we went down to five, um, partly just because of, of financial considerations. But in terms of the plant being able to print the magazines, um, they they were great. Uh,
0: so now that we're you know only a few months away from I guess the the two year anniversary of the of COVID really hitting the U.S., what's the lesson of it to you when it comes to media? Was would, was media already kind of always in this transformational period? So COVID wasn't that impactful. Like for example, in in digital health, right, which is an industry that you guys cover a lot that we invest in a lot. You know, it was transformational because. The value proposition became very clear all of a sudden to the vast majority uh, of people. Um, and as a result, you know, it's not going to r- return to what it was. What's the equivalent of that, if any, for the media because of COVID?
1: Yeah, I think the equivalent for us, I mean, certainly the digital transformation of media was well underway. And this just kind of underlined it. I mean, for a magazine like Fast Company, um, we we do a tremendous amount of you know newsstand sales at airports when there were no air, when nobody was traveling and there were no you know airport newsstands at which to buy the magazine you know the the way that we had to communicate our content to people was absolutely through digital and we like a lot of um, news organizations just saw readership go up tremendously in the earliest months of the pandemic and, and in some cases we've we've retained some of those gains um, so the digital transformation was underway one thing I'll say and this is a little counterintuitive but you know Bradley that um, a, a lot of the way I made my career was in helping develop live journalism platforms yeah, yeah and so you know a lot of media brands in particular business media brands have have invested heavily in the conference business and for a lot of us, it was a wake-up call. How do we translate live journalism into virtual conferences or virtual summits? So I think that was a really big learning for us because the trade-off is that on the one hand, you don't get the kind of networking and camaraderie that is so appealing about the conference business. On the other hand, we were able to bring a global audience to the Fast Company Innovation Festival. The first year we did the Innovation Festival virtually in 2020, I think we had 30,000 registrants wow. from you know 60 to 75 countries around the world. What was
0: it in person the year before?
1: In, in person the year before was 2000.
0: Right, yeah, 15X is pretty big. Yeah. Um, and, and so how should conferences and events work going forward do you do you, are you returning to physical or are you going to try to make, keep it a hybrid like what's what's the right approach based on what you've learned
1: I, I think it is going to be hybrid because you know you don't want to lose that connection to the global audience um, but it's just not realistic to expect people from you know Nairobi to get on a plane and come to a conference for a week um, you know and, and by the way I'll say this as, as somebody who when I got to To Fast Company, I was amazed at how global the audience was for the Innovation Festival. You would have teams of like five or six designers from Brazil, they would all fly up to New York together. And, you know, unlike some of the other places I worked, like, they were paying their own way. Their companies weren't sending them to the innovation festival. They were just such fans of the content and the brand that that's that they would spend their own money and use their own vacation time to come to New York to to engage with um, with fast company live content. But I think going forward, you know, we we want to create that opportunity for people to come to New York or to go to San Francisco or Los Angeles to convene with, you know, newsmakers and journalists. But we know that. We'll, we're going to have to find a way to capture that content and make it available, you know, maybe in real time or, you know, with a slight delay for a community of people that have come to know us and and like what we do, but you know, won't have the wherewithal to to come and be with us in person. So
0: you guys are not kind of an explicitly political publication. You're a business publication, but with. Everything becoming so political these days, and everything so kind of hyper partisan and divided, do you feel it kind of creeping into what you do, and do you have to worry about now what feel like traditional business stories all of a sudden you know uh, appealing or turning off you know one half of the population or the other?
1: You know a fast company has since its inception twenty six years ago leaned what I would say what I would call progressive with a lowercase p, you know, it's not a political party, but it is certainly a mindset. And so, you know, partly because of our philosophy and partly because, you know, we're not Bloomberg, we're not Reuters, we don't have to cover everything. The things that we pick and choose to cover, I think, fall firmly into, um, you know, the the camp of, 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 you know, progress in business and business and, and its role in society. And so, you know, we're not going to cover Exxon earnings. We're not going to cover, you know, um, a, a, a new Chevron platform um, coming online. Like that's just not the kind of news we would cover even if um, even if I had the staff to, to cover oil and gas. You know we, we tend to focus on, you know, companies and businesses of all sizes. That are focused on innovation and usually innovation in favor of or in the name of, you know, sustainability. Innovation in the name of um, greater diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, innovation in the name of greater financial inclusion um, in society. So, you know, I think there's there's certainly critics who feel that a publication like Fast Company leans left, I would say that those values are capitalistic values. If you look at what the Business Roundtable has been saying for the last two years, if you look at what Larry Fink has been writing for the last five or 10 years, you know I don't think we're out of step with mainstream business. Um, I think we're just trying to push the envelope a little bit harder
0: and just for the probably most of the listeners know know what stephanie was referencing about larry fink and about the business roundtable but but let's take it on a little more so the what the business roundtable said that was at least very famous in our world was effectively the point of a corporation is not solely to to provide maximum profit for the shareholders but also to, you know, have a larger responsibility to society in different ways, right? And that's actually was a radical departure because the Milton Friedman kind of version of the only thing that matters uh, is the share price, um, you know, had been the dominant thought for decades and decades. Um, Do you feel like the business world is actually trending in that direction, or do you feel like the kind of corporate leaders in spotting how the political zeitgeist has changed, kind of changed their tune, but not necessarily their action.
1: I, I think it, it, it's happening on a case-by-case basis. I mean, there are, there's no question to me that there is a new generation of business leaders that absolutely believe in their bones that they have an obligation to you know, think about the impact of their actions and their um, output on the planet. Um, whether it's you know Tim Cook at Apple or um, you know the sort of new rising stars that are, are coming of age um, in the entrepreneurial world, there there does seem to be a a, a genuine belief that um, that that business needs to be a major stakeholder in that conversation. You know, I would say if you look at you know the one hundred and eighty one CEOs who signed the statement of purpose that you referenced, Bradley, this idea that you know, that, a, that this old mainline organization like the Business Roundtable would come out and say, we acknowledge that our so, the sole purpose of a corporation is not to enrich shareholders. You know, I, I think that, you know, if you went through all 181, you could absolutely find a ton of examples of greenwashing and people just sort of saying what's politically expedient or, you know, more and more what their employees wanna hear. You know, I hear this all the time. I'm sure you do all the time, Bradley, which is that, you know, uh, a lot of times employees are the ones asking corporations and CEOs, what are your values? Um, what are your commitments? Um, but I also think this movement from the investor community around ESG, um, that's, that, that, that it, it feels more real to me. And again, I've been doing this for 25 plus years. You know, I remember the, you know, Corporate social responsibility investing, social responsibility investing. You know, there have been different flavors of this over the years, and they've all felt very flavor of the month to me. This this feels a little bit more like it has legs, and I think once there are actual standards and metrics for how an investor can measure, you know, whether Apple's commitments to um, the environment and to governance and to society are better than you know, their nearest competitor, you know, I, I think we'll, it, it, it will it will start to have a more substantial impact.
0: The, the employee thing I have found personally kind of particularly tricky because on one hand, you can learn a lot from your employees that you might not be aware of otherwise, especially my employees that are younger than me, which at this point I think is most of them. Um, and in a super competitive job market, it is one way to attract and retain uh, talent is if people feel like not just that your culture is great um, but that there is the ability to to advise and have input on the, comp- the decisions the company makes on the other hand you, i feel myself sometimes needing to say or at least wanting to say we're a business we need to make money I, you expect me to pay you every two weeks you want your benefits to always be on and always work and everything else you know, I can't do that just out of good intentions. You know, I, I need clients, I need revenue, I need LPs. You know, I need business to to do that. And so I, I know I struggle with this, which is you know, you you want to you want to listen, you want to kind of adapt to the times that you're in, but you also recognize that you know. If you own the business, especially you're the CEO, you're you the person accountable at the end of the day. How do you think kind of business leaders are handling, you know, that dynamic?
1: It, it, it's a tricky one, and I, I imagine that, you know, some CEOs are more deft at it than others. Partly because, you know, again, I think a lot of it just comes down to authenticity. If if the employees believe that the CEO is trying her best or his best to try to adhere to you know the stated values of the organization, um, while also being really straightforward about what you just said, Bradley, which is that you know th- that there's um, an obligation to you know a whole ecosystem of people who rely on the corporation. I mean, I think that's one of the things that has gotten a little bit lost in the business roundtable statement of purpose, which is that you know if a corporation is really um, trying to serve all of these stakeholders you know, the the best way for a corporation to be able to serve its community is to hire from that community, to create jobs in that community. You know, it's not about, you know, the foundation making a grant to a school so that they can paint a mural. It's really about saying, how can we, how can we create a pathway for jobs for people who live and work in the cities and markets that we serve? And, you know, you can't grow jobs if you can't grow the business. And so, you know, th- there's there's a real way to communicate to employees that doing social good and doing um, well as a business can go hand in hand. What,
0: what so you guys cover? Obviously, you know, emerging and fast growing trends in both business and technology. What do you do when something comes up that is really exciting? There's a huge amount of of reader interest in it. Um, take crypto or NFTs as examples. And yet you must have at least personally some concerns and some reservations. So you don't want to be an all in cheerleader, you know, a Bitcoin maximalist or something like that. But at the same time, um, this is clearly what your audience is interested in. How do you kind of balance those two things?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it, it comes back to our, you know, editorial training and you know, I know I just said that, you know, we can pick and choose our stories and we can have a little bit of a point of view because we're a magazine, we're not the Associated Press where we're trying to give equal time to all points of view. But, you know, I think it's just a, applying that um, that skeptical reportorial lens to everything we write about. And so, you know, ultimately if we do write about something like crypto or NFTs, you know, it, It needs to be deeply reported. It needs to be holistic. It needs to be, you know, it it needs to provide people with some context. And, you know, we're lucky because our readers are smart. And I think if we give them context, uh, they'll see that we are really trying to provide information without, you know, sort of seeming like we're a, a cheerleader for for something that feels particularly hyped at the moment. Yeah,
0: and I, I think one one plug for you guys. Obviously, I'm biased here, but um, you let your writers and columnists also, you know, write about things that are sometimes technical and complicated and esoteric. I have a piece, I think, coming on Saturday for you guys about telemedicine licensing requirements in different
1: states. (laughs) That's really in the weeds.
0: Yeah. No, really. I was like, there's no way they're going to want this. And they're like, yeah, this was pretty interesting. So, you know, I I think if you're looking for really, really thoughtful content, um, you know, you you guys become an obvious stop. You, You have teenage kids and I'm sure when their friends or people in college come to you and say, hey, should I be a journalist? You know, what are the pros and cons? How do you think about it? And how has it changed from, say, 25 years ago when you were entering the profession?
1: I would say that um, I'm I'm more bullish on journalism than I was probably um, 10 years ago. When was it that I had my, like, crisis and breakdown? <laughs> I think I mentioned it <laughs> at the beginning of the call. No, I mean, I, obviously when I got into the profession – 25, 30, 25, 26 years ago, I, 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 you know, I came of age with a group of, you know, young journalists who, you know, quite honestly, you know, I, I was not an Ivy League kid, but all of my co-workers coming into the journal, they had all gone to the best schools. Some had law degrees, some, you know, I mean, they just could have gone anywhere and they were called to a profession in journalism. And I would say, today I'm I'm super bullish on on journalism but it's changed it's not you know it's not a job where you can just do your news stories and sit in your cubicle and just crank out story after story after story I mean I think for a certain um, elite group of brilliant writers that can still be a, a, a path but for you know sort of a a, a workaday journalist like me when I got into the profession, you know, it really is about um, being multimedia. And so, you know, and if you have a little bit of um, a short attention span, which <laughs> I kind of do, yeah, it's yeah, actually great. That. Yeah. You know, you know, like you can, you can write, but you can also do a podcast or you could do you know a fun blog post or you could learn videography i mean i think that you know people coming into the profession now have to have all of those skills mm-hmm. um, yeah. and you really can cobble together an interesting profession if you are you know volunteering to be that person in your organization who can you know be a jack of all trades
0: so i have found it really feels like it's just the last few weeks or months you know, the phrase web three now comes up in like every possible conversation.
1: That's because people like, don't want to use metaverse.
0: Right, because it's
1: <laughs> so annoying like promoting Facebook, well, right? Nobody right, wants Facebook to be a Facebook kind of, apologist, right. yeah. But it's one of those terms
0: that I feel like both means everything and nothing at the same time. What direction do you give your, your writers as to sort of how to think about it and write about it?
1: Um, so one of our writers, Nicole Laporte, who is based in Los Angeles, has a really great story um, about Web3, which she tells through the lens of um, the Chernin Group. Peter Chernin is the mm-hmm. former president of Fox, who um, has gone on to become a very successful investor. Yep. And you know they are now thinking about going from media properties, which is interesting. They invested in uh, Food Fifty Two and Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine, and now they're really looking at, you know, um, at Web Three or the Metaverse. And so, you know, for us, it's it's you know, we, we need good narratives, we need storytelling, and we need credible people like Peter Chernin who are now sharing their investing thoughts um, with us about why they think this world is interesting. And so, to your question, you know, we we really. I, I, it's not our role to define what Web three or the Metaverse is. I think it's our job to cover smart and interesting business leaders who are making bets in this area and having them paint a picture of what they think this world will look like. And you know, every executive is going to have a slightly different point of view based on, you know, what their influences are. Um, and so, you know, when you talk to people in the travel world, they really think about, uh, you know, I attended an event a few months ago where, um, you know, a, a bunch of people from the world of, of travel and culture were talking about, you know, could you do armchair travel to places like Bhutan, which, you know, only allows a certain number of tourists in a year. They're really trying to preserve um the cultural heritage of the place they don't want it to be overwhelmed or swamped by tourists and yet it's supposed to be one of the most beautiful places in the world and so could you use web3 to enable people to have truly interactive local experiences without ever having to get on a plane and expand the carbon footprint and you know trample on a, a, a a, a local community that is already really fragile.
0: As kind of the the world of content creators grows and grows, and whether it's you know YouTube or Instagram or TikTok or other platforms, um, it, how do you sort of tell your journalists like this is a journalist, not a content creator? Like, how, how do you distinguish between the two, and, and do do people still understand the difference?
1: I think that. Our readers understand the difference, and the people that we aspire to capture as readers understand the difference. And you know, this is a conversation. I think we have a lot inside our news organization, which is, you know, how do we how do we attract readers who want quality, and then how do we train people that we do start to attract to expect quality? Um, you know, for me, it really does boil down to um, the reporting and the fact checking. And you know, I. I tell this to people all the time because, you know, at Fast Company, particularly for our magazine articles, we have an outside fact checker. Our own writers, you know, go through a very rigorous fact checking process with their stories. Um, you know, if you've ever talked to anybody who's been the subject of a New Yorker magazine article or a Vanity Fair magazine article, they will tell you that the fact checking process is, you know, it's almost painful because every single eye that needs to be dotted or T that needs to be crossed is, is, is checked and checked twice. You
0: appreciate it. Like the New Yorker did a piece a couple of years ago on the mobile voting stuff we're doing. And like, there was a lot of fact checking, but I felt appreciative of it because they were trying to get it right. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, and this is, this is the, the the great opportunity that um, editorial um, folks like me hopefully have, which is to start to explain to readers that, you know, I don't just sit down at a computer and write something off the top of my head. You know, in addition to the training I've had, um, I, you know, I, I, I do lots of interviews and um, before I hit send, I will go back to the people I'm writing about and double check to make sure the, the names are spelled correctly and that, you know, any factual information I include is, is accurate. So to me, that's, that's what separates a journalist from, you know, a content creator uh, which is not to say that there aren't really great content creators out there who are you know being really rigorous and careful about the information they put out there but you know we we, we would get fired if we didn't do it versus a content creator who who can just put stuff who out do what there they and want. yeah
0: where does a substack fit into that
1: um you know i think that there's a lot of um a lot of journalists who have who have newsletters and who have um you know built along a following and you know a lot of the folks i read are trained in the same tradition as we are. And you know, again, I think they're counting on their readers to know what the rules of engagement are.
0: So as we head into 2022, does COVID remain the big story throughout the year? And then you know, what other stories are you excited about that you think, okay, 2022 is gonna be really big around these issues?
1: I think COVID remains the big story of the year in the sense that we're now going to be writing about how we live with COVID. And how businesses operate in a world in which the specter of COVID is just permanent, um, and for a lot of organizations and a lot of what we write about, that's going to mean how do you manage these hybrid workforces? And um, I, I, I feel like we're we're going to be twenty years from now, we're going to be reading case studies, and, um, and 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 sociologists are going to be writing books about how we figured things how we attempted to figure things out in the sort of 2020 to 2022 period cuz it's going to have long lasting effects on professional development organizational structure management science like all of this stuff is all still a work in progress but it's going to have huge long term ramifications so i think that's going to be a big business story um and i think the other thing that we're focused on and it's it's somewhat related to this because you can make the case for why hybrid work has interesting implications for the built environment and so many of the the, the you know it, it, urban life and things that we'd like to write about as well. But um, I I I just sustainability um, figuring out um, you know moving when you read these climate reports coming out of the UN it's just it's the most dire thing it's it's more depressing in some ways than you know. The, 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 the stories that we've been reading and writing about COVID for the last two years, although those are incredibly depressing, too, um, and, you know, bringing real innovation to climate solutions, I think, and, and at scale is going to be a story that we're excited to cover. Yeah.
0: So so, so so you guys may lean progressive with a small p, but just as a reader, you're generally objective and neutral. Um, that's not the case with a lot of mainstream media websites or, or just news outlets these days. Um, if you're a consumer of information and you understand there are different points of view, but you want to at least be able to kind of know what's fact and what's opinion, you know, how do you think about it, both as a reader and how should people listening to this this podcast think about
1: it? It's a really good question. And you know, it, for, for me as somebody who consumes a lot of news, I, I, I like to think that I have my filter kind of attuned and I also, I know how the sausage is made, right? And and you know how the sausage is made. And so when I see the same story that you know quotes anonymous sources in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the Financial Times, you know, I I know it's not because four different newspapers have four different reporters who happen to stumble upon the same anonymous source, right? <laughs> like you know we know how how that game is played. And so you know part of it is you know. Being educated about how the news media work, and you know, my peers and I have some work to do there. We can really help the consumer better understand. I would say, you know, and this is what I, I tell my kids, which is to, you know, not be not get all your information from one source. Um, and it doesn't mean that you need to do what I do, which is to look every morning at four different news websites. But you know, one day get your information from you know. The, the New York Times, the next day get your information from the Washington Post, and the next day you know spend some time on on you know the NBC News website, which is actually really great for news beyond what you see on the broadcast. Um, I, 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 it's just really valuable to be an educated consumer and to shop around a little bit. Um, and look, you know, at the end of the day, you may decide like I, I, I know it's biased, but I love my Fox News and you know that's that's not great for the world necessarily but um, you know at least at least people are showing an interest in, in what's happening in the world around them. You know, we were, it wasn't that long ago, Bradley, that people in my industry were worried that people just wouldn't consume news and information.
0: Right. They're certainly consuming it now. They may be consuming it in kind of very hyper, you know, tribalistic ways, but but they are consuming it. So I, I guess that that's probably the most optimistic take I've heard uh, on media consumption <laughs> in a long time and therefore probably the right way to wrap it up. So Stephanie Meta, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Bradley. Have a great holiday.
0: You too.